Good morning, Abundant Life. It is so good to see you. Lee Summit, Independence, Blue Springs, all of you watching online, we're so thankful for you. No place like home. I was in Austin a week ago, got to see my oldest son and his wife, went to an amazing church there, but I'm telling you guys, there's no place like home. Thank you for letting me come home to my family at Abundant Life. I miss you every time I'm gone. We're beginning a brand new series today. I'm so excited about the book of First Peter. We're going to dive right in because we're trying to save some space at the end for response, for worship. I know God wants to do something special in your life. First Peter chapter 1 is going to be our series, verse by verse, line by line. We're going to dissect one of the most amazing books of the Bible, the book of First Peter, beginning right here, right now, verse 1. Are you ready for this? Say, let's go. Here we go. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. So anytime you begin studying a book of the Bible, you begin by answering some basic questions, like beginning with who wrote it. So who wrote it, church? Isn't the Bible hard to understand? I mean, it's just so deep, isn't it? Mysterious. Who's Peter? Maybe you're new to the Bible. Maybe you're new to your faith. Let me explain. Peter was one of the 12 disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's one now of the 12 apostles. The apostles, it says in Ephesians 2 and verse 2, is the foundation of the New Testament church, meaning God brought the New Testament revelation through them, of which we're about to study one of those letters of this New Testament revelation, this letter of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to these first century Christians. It's an open letter for every Christian from every generation. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Notice he addresses us as pilgrims. We should never stop thinking like a pilgrim. What is a pilgrim? A pilgrim is somebody who's on a spiritual journey, usually to a faraway location, a faraway destiny. What is Peter reminding us of? This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. See, we're pilgrims spiritually. We're, we're not, we're not going to stay here very long. And it's really important we remember that. He says, I'm writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, this term dispersion referred to the Jews who'd been dispersed from Jerusalem and Israel. Now they're living among other nations. And they'd been dispersed because of persecution. And now some of these Jews have followed the Jewish Messiah, that is Jesus. Uh, Jesus. And all these locations is basically in what was then known as Asia Minor, today modern-day Turkey. And modern-day Turkey became one of the strongholds of early Christianity. And many of these early Jewish followers of Jesus are now living, having been dispersed among these other locations. He's writing now to them specifically. Now, because it is specifically Peter writing to the Jewish followers of Jesus, what that means for you and I, 2,000 years later, as we study this book, we need to think like a first century Jew and not a 21st century Gentile non-Jewish Christian. And see, that's why so much of the time we try to study the Bible today and we miss so much of what God has for us because we try to superimpose our thoughts onto the text based on our culture and our space and our place and time. And so I'm just telling you ahead of time, we need to think like these first century followers of Jesus coming out of Judaism that have now been dispersed throughout other locations. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. We're exactly two verses in, and we are already in the deep end. I mean, really, this is amazing. I love this book. Two verses in, we're already in the deep end of the pool. 
I don't have time to explain everything here. I'm going to come back before we leave chapter 1. I'm going to pick up this verse, and we're going to dissect it. There is so much going on in verse 2. Deep concepts like election and foreknowledge and sanctification. I'm going to come back and pick this up at a later sermon. But listen, for now, I just want to point something out. He is writing for what reason? Our sanctification. He's writing for our sanctification. See, our salvation comes in three stages. According to Romans chapter 8, 39 through 40, our salvation begins with our justification. The moment you receive Jesus, put your faith in him. He forgives you of your sin, and it's just as if you've never sinned. In the eyes of God, you are innocent of sin. That's called justification. The third stage is glorification. That's when one day you stand before him in heaven, and you become literally like him. But everything in the middle is sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is simply kind of a theological, biblical, flowery-sounding word. It's really not really a theological word at all, though. Sanctification, to sanctify something, simply means to set it apart, to be set apart. You can sanctify anything. So I just got done doing something called 75 Hard. Has anybody heard of it? Kind of a trendy fitness thing a lot of people are doing. For 75 days, you work out twice a day for 45 minutes a day. You're supposed to drink a gallon of water a day, have a special diet. I'm just being honest with you. According to what Paul said, the Corinthians, the letter of the law kills, the spirit of the law gives life. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie to you and say I kept it to the letter of the law. I didn't. All right? I'm kind of a spirit of the law kind of guy. I was doing this with Sean Struckmeyer. He called what I was doing 75 soft, Okay. I'm just being honest. I'm not going not to lie to you. I didn't maybe do every workout every day. Life kind of got in the way. But for the most part, you know, I caught the spirit of the law, okay? I did. One thing I did do, though, is I avoided desserts for 75 days. I'm telling you, miracles happen. <laughs> First time in my life, I went 75 days without ice cream. It's a modern miracle. I did. So my 75 days got over a few days ago, and somebody brought in a box of a dozen donuts. Guess what I did? I sanctified one of those donuts. <laughs> I set it apart. It was here with all of them. I took it from here to here. I set it apart. I sanctified it. I ate it. Guilt-free. Completely guilt-free. Last night, we live out in rural Cass County, and we drove to Holden, where there's this little 1960s vintage ice cream stand called Straits. I had me a double hamburger and a pineapple shake. Only place I know you can get a pineapple shake. I sanctified it. I set it apart. Do you understand that's what sanctification means? Meaning God sanctified you. What does this mean? It means he has set you apart from sin and set you apart to him. He set you apart from the world and set you apart to him to be a child of God. And you see, Peter's now writing for this purpose that we might be sanctified in the process of our sanctification of being set apart from our sin and set apart to become more like him. Look at what he says. Now, he says this, sanctification of the spirit for obedience. And here is the missing element for a lot of our sanctification, obedience, See, you can't be a follower of the Son of God if you're not following the Word of God. And right there's the problem for some of us. See, he reminds us our sanctification demands our obedience. And that's kind of the missing gem of modern Christianity, to be quite frank with you. A lot of us want to follow the Son of God, but we just want to do it our way. 
Uh, We want to walk it out our way. We don't want to follow the word of God. And what he's reminding us is you can't live life abundantly. What is the theme of our verse? It's in our name. Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, I've come to give you life and you can have it more abundantly, abundantly, right? But listen carefully, you can't live abundantly if you're not living obediently. And that's what Peter's trying to remind us. You can't live the abundant life if you're not living an obedient life. And so as you live obediently, you start to live life more abundantly, and it's through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now right here, when I think about thinking like an early Jew, a first century Jew, coming out of Judaism to follow Jesus, uh, when you think about a blood sacrifice, what do you think about as a Christian? We think about who? Jesus on the cross. He spilled his blood. He poured out his blood for our penalty of sin. But see, these first century Jews receiving this letter for the first time, when they would think of a blood sacrifice, they would think of what? A literal lamb on an altar. The sprinkling of the blood, this has Jewish overtones. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the Jewish high priest of Israel would go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the Jewish temple, and he would take the blood of a lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, the dwelling place of God, to atone for the sins of Israel. And did you know, according to Hebrews chapter 8, 2,000 years ago, our Savior, the Son of God, rose from the dead, and he went into the presence of God in the third heaven, behind the veil where he sprinkled the blood of a lamb, not just any lamb, but the blood of a man. I'm talking about Jesus, the man who became our lamb. He shed his blood for our sin to atone for our sin, and he sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat in heaven. You see, we have been sanctified, set apart by the Spirit of God, justified by the blood of the Son of God. He says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So what is Peter writing for? Peter's writing this letter for our sanctification, the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. This is Peter's goal for your life as he writes this letter. This is God's goal for your life as a child of God, that you be conformed more and more like him. Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God wants you to bear his image. You were created to bear his image. You remember Genesis chapter one, God said, let us create man in our image, in our likeness. But what happened when Adam sinned? Sin has so distorted the image of God in creation. Sin has so distorted the image of God in you that Jesus came to undo the curse of sin so that you could become once again like him. And while the world is trying to conform you into their image, God wants to conform you now into his image. As a child of God, God wants you now to become increasingly like the Son of God. That is the process now of sanctification. It's a process of growth. It doesn't happen instantly. You were forgiven of sin's penalty instantly. The moment you placed your faith in him, you were forgiven the end. But that is not the end. It's just the beginning of sanctification. Now, he wants to deliver you not just from sin's penalty, but from sin's power so that you can increasingly live a life that is holy and become more and more like him. First Peter is a manual on humility. So there's a theme in every book of the Bible, kind of this connecting theme. And the theme of First Peter is humility. Why would humility be the theme? Because humility is one of the essential character qualities of Christ-likeness. How many of you know a really proud, boastful, arrogant Christian? Would you raise your hand? 
How many of you are sitting next to one right now? Oh, put your hands down, okay? Don't point. Yeah, here's the point. If you're really growing as a Christ follower, you're not proud, you're not boastful, you're not arrogant. You're growing in this character quality of humility. What does it say in Philippians chapter two and verse five? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not rivalry equal with God, but came fashioned as a servant, and being found fashioned as a servant and in the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He wants you to be like him, to have that mind of Christ, which is humility, as opposed to proud in this selfie society. Look at me, everything things for my glory, and you see humility is essential if you're going to grow spiritually into spiritual maturity. You know why? Because the opposite of humility is self-sufficiency. See, the opposite of humility is pride, and pride says I can be self-sufficient, I can live independent, and Peter wants us to see ultimately that we cannot become more like Christ without a heart that is postured in humility. Everything he's doing, he's driving toward this theme in chapter five. How many of you, when you read a book, you read the front and then you read the back before you read the middle? I admit I do. I admit I do. I usually skip to the back to see if I want to actually read the book. All right, so we're going to do that today. We're reading the front. Now I want you to see what's in the back. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. See, it's a manual on humility. Everything he's about to do is to drive toward this theme of humility in our life. Humility is when we start to walk in Christ-likeness, to bear the image of God once again. Now, here's what I want you to see. Humility is not weakness. A lot of people think, well, you know, humble people are weak. No, there's a difference between weak and meek. Being meek is not weak. Meekness is power under control, strength under control. Jesus had ultimate power, but that power was under control. You see, he wasn't weak, he was meek because he, he was humble. He came with humility. And for the believer, check it out, humility is what creates in us dependency where we become increasingly dependent on God. And the degree you're dependent on God is the degree that you're living in the power of God. Do you want the power of God? Hey, I want the power of God upon my life. I do not want to live a natural life. I want to live a supernatural life. And to the degree you are humble before God, you're depending on God, and you're now living with the power of God. That is the power that Peter wants us to live with every day. Now, it says in verse 2, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. I'm going to come back and pick this up a couple of weeks from now before we leave chapter 1. Sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. This is kind of a, a greeting of the first century, where today we might say, howdy, Hey, howdy, good to see you. Uh, como estas? Are you impressed? <laughs> Don't answer, I won't know what to say then. Okay. 
That's what he's saying, grace and peace, kind of a normal greeting of Christians in the first century. What you have here is the Gentile greeting and the Jewish greeting because God always desired Gentile, non-Jews, to be in one family with Jews. That's what we are. We're one body in Christ, Jew and Gentile. Grace and peace. This is the same greeting Paul would use often in his letters. Peter now uses it too. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. You know why grace comes first? Because you can't have peace with God till you receive the grace of God. And check this out, once you have peace with God, now you can have the peace of God, but only once you've received the grace of God by faith in the Son of God. Now this is the normal greeting, Paul uses it, but then Peter, look what he adds to it, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now all of a sudden, you see Peter's personality coming out. If you know anything about Peter, if you followed him in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that was 30 years before. Now Peter's writing this letter of 1 Peter 30 years later, and he is a changed man. I mean, he's completely changed. It is remarkable that of the 12 disciples, God chooses Peter to write a manual on humility. Because if you read the gospel accounts of the young Peter, no one would describe this man as humble. He was Peter the Browd. He was Peter the Brash. He was Peter the Boastful. He was Peter that was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was Peter, Peter that was the braggadocious one. I mean, he's the one that boasted Jesus when everybody else runs away. I'm your guy. I'm going to stay. Of course, he didn't. He needed to be humble, didn't he? I mean, one of my favorite stories of Peter in the Gospels is on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is transfigured and momentarily he takes off his flesh of humanity and it's suddenly the unveiled glory of his deity. And all of a sudden Moses is there and Elijah is there, two of the great prophets and patriarchs in Israel's history. This is a holy moment. And Peter is witnessing this and Peter just has to say something. In this holy moment, he walks up to Jesus and Elijah and he Moses, and he walks up with his two boys on either side, James and John. He says, hey guys, it's good we're here. Good thing we're here. Uh, This would be like me seeing LeBron James, Larry Bird, and Michael Jordan in a gym, and they're just having a shoot around, and I walk up and say, hey guys, it's a good thing I'm here. (laughs) Who wants me on their team? Yeah, I know you do. Yeah, let's play some three on three. That, that's Peter. I mean, Peter, why did, did just, just, just don't say anything, right? This is Peter. But something has changed 30 years later. Guess what? He's been through this process of sanctification. He's no longer Peter the bra- proud and brash and boastful and braggadocious. He's now Peter the humble. God has worked in his life, a work of transformation, that same work that God wants to do in your life and my life. He says, grace and peace be multiplied. He's still Peter the passionate, and you see that personality come out. Peace be multiplied to you. And then he has this outburst of celebration and exuberation, this outburst of emotion as he brings God glory. Glorification. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. All of a sudden, Peter begins with this great shout because he is living under the spout where the glory 
glory comes out and he just has this outburst of celebration and exuberation and passion as he's bringing God glory. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by faith until the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. I mean, we've got a living hope in a world with no hope. Listen, hopelessness is in the air. Hopelessness is everywhere. Hopelessness and despair. But Peter says we are with a living hope that never fades away, that will never go away. He says rejoice. Amen by ourselves. Like two of us. I mean, he's rejoicing. He's just having this glory fit, isn't he? And then all of a sudden he turns. All of a sudden he just changes his tone just like that. He says, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. See, he begins with this great shout. I mean, God is amazing. He's living where the glory comes out, and there's this outburst of celebration and this explosion of exuberation. All of a sudden, he makes a turn. He says, but now, if need be, you've been grieved through various trials. Understand historically what's going on at this time of the first century. Nero is the emperor. Nero is on the throne. And for the first time, the Roman government is targeting Christians. And they're going through intense persecution. It's about 65, 66, 67 AD. The apostle Paul will be martyred at the hands of Nero. Peter will soon be martyred at the hands of Nero. Nero is a deranged ruler, probably demonically possessed. He makes sport out of taking Christians, pouring pitch on them, tying them to stakes, setting them on fire to light up his palatial gardens at night. That is the kind of tribulation these early Christians are going through. Now you know why Peter is writing to those Jews of the dispersion around the first century Roman Empire, the persecution, the trial, the tribulation we frankly can't fathom or imagine. And what Peter is about to teach us in this opening letter of this chapter is this. Our sanctification is forged in the fires of life's trials. And these early Christians are going through intense trial. Now, church, I want you to know, there was a time in my life I didn't really understand this. I had lived a rather sheltered life. Growing up, I, looking back, lived a very blessed life, very sheltered life. I didn't fully understand the things that I understand now. Bad things were always things that happened to somebody else who knew someone who knew someone that it happened to. But I know this now that no one gets a pass in this life. There are no exemptions. Yeah, we live under the spout where the glory comes out and Peter is saying, hey, we have this inheritance undefiled that does not fade away. He's talking about the sweet by and by and he is glorifying God for the sweet by and by, but we live in the nasty now and now. 
And this world has been cursed by sin. All of creation is under the curse. As by one man's sin, Romans 5 and verse 12, death passed on all men for all have sinned. Consequently, we live in a world of pain and tears and trials and death and destruction and deprivation and depression and darkness. And I want you to see that nobody gets a pass. Eventually, it will come to you too. And Peter wants you to see what God is going to do when you find yourself in the trials of this life. Listen carefully, tribulation is what brings about transformation and that is what brings about our sanctification. Our sanctification of becoming more like Christ is when we bear the agony of a crucifixion. And there is no sanctification apart from the transformation. There's no transformation if God never allowed you to go through any tribulation. And this is what he's writing now in these opening verses, verse seven, why does God allow even his children to go through fires and trials and tribulation that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter is teaching that your faith is like gold. In the ancient days, just like today, gold had to be put through the fire. Fire would test the gold. The fire would purify the gold. It would refine the gold. And so the goldsmith would put the gold in the fire and the heat would melt that gold. And what would happen when it would be melted is the impurities would rise to the top. He'd take off the impurities. He'd put it back in the fire. He'd repeat over and over again. Each time the impurities would come to the top, he'd take the impurities off. He'd put it back in the fire. What is Peter saying? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory Jesus Christ at his appearing. You see, only when that gold went through the fire, could the goldsmith take it out? It was purer, it was better, it was more beautiful, and then he could mold it into something usable. And that is what God wants to do with your life. In the fires of this life, what's he doing? He is testing the metal of your faith. It's when you become moldable by becoming more humble that you become now more usable and as a child of God, more beautiful. And you see, God could never do that if he did not allow us to go through the fires. Listen, God is not the author of evil, but he allowed the possibility of evil. He knew that sin would bring death and sin would bring suffering, but he knew that a world without pain would be worse than a world without choice. So he allowed mankind the choice to choose him, reject him. They rejected him, then came sin, and then came suffering. But every single one of us still have a choice to follow him or reject him. And in the fire of life's trials, it proves the genuineness of your faith. It is easy to say, I have faith when I'm going on vacation. Oh boy, it's easy to give Jesus a shout and glory. Oh Jesus, God is, God, you're so good. When you get the promotion, How about when you lose your job? The genuineness of your faith is only known then. The genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried by fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory Jesus Christ at his coming. Listen, it's in the fires of life's trials that God is refining our faith so that we can bring Jesus greater glory. And that is the chief end of man, to bring God our maker and our savior, great glory.
Very precious family in our church, been members of our church for many years, dear, dear friends. Nick and Jenny Swearingen have been through one of the hottest fires any of us will ever go through. And they agreed to share their story. Listen carefully. As a family with the kids, as they were growing up, we traveled a lot. We loved to travel, the kids loved to travel. And had some really great memories of some fantastic trips that we were blessed to take. People described her as a light when she walked into the room, like she just lit up the room and Jordan would come into a room and her attitude was and her mindset, that person over there I don't know that's over there by themselves, I'm gonna be friends with them before I leave. She just loved pouring into people. Jordan had epilepsy. She um, started having seizures at 13 that we know of. Really, she only had three, one at 13, one at 14, one at 15 years old, and she was on medication to control it. I knew she wasn't taking as much as she should have been, um, but it turned out that she was taking even less than that, and um, she ended up um, having a seizure alone. Yeah, September 6, 2015, we were at church. We came home after church and uh, had a voicemail message from my aunt uh, that something was wrong. She said we needed to get up to Maryville because something was wrong with Jordan. My mom is in the other room, and I hear kind of frantically answer the phone, and she's like, what are you talking about? What's going on? Uh, and then she's just like, oh, my goodness, we need to go to Maryville, which is where my sister was living at the time. So we loaded up in the car and went up there, and I had called her boyfriend and said, you need to get over there and find out what's going on. We got about to the triangle from our house in Lee Summit. We were driving up to Maryville. My parents decided, hey, we need to pull over and pray. We're going to pray for your sister, pray for the situation so we can understand whatever it is God gives us understanding. And as we drove a little further up, uh, my sister's boyfriend at the time ended up calling us and said, hey, the coroner's here. She's, she's dead. In the moment that we got the news that she had passed, I remember looking out the window and driving down the road and thinking, I have a decision to make right now. I'll either curse you and hate you till the day I die, God, or I'll, you know, praise you for giving her to us in the first place. And quite honestly, the only other choice was to never have her in the first place. And we have so much joy from her that we would never choose that. We got there, and as we're trying to sort through details and just numb, um, my phone starts ringing. We're here. Where are you? Where do we need to go? What are you doing here? People drove two and four hours, and, and I said, you called. You asked us to pray. You know, I'm like, I don't even remember that. What an amazing group of people we have around us that I truly believe God surrounded us with for years and years leading up to that because he knew we needed them. He knew we needed that church family. You just have to do the next thing. Like, you don't know what to do, but you have to do the next thing. You have to get out of bed. You have to brush your teeth. You have to take the shower. You have to, you know. And I started working pretty quickly right after, and that helped take, you know, your mind off of it a little bit. There was times early on that you know, she would leave and go to work and she'd say, what are you gonna do today? I said, I'm gonna stay in bed and cry all day. And there was days by noon, that's what I had done. I just laid in bed and did nothing but cry. And finally I was like, this isn't healthy. This isn't what God wants you to do. 
And you know what? If nothing else, get up and go sit at the cemetery and talk to God. Talk to Jordan. Enjoy the day. The hardest part was watching her. And I couldn't help. I can only be there to encourage, and there's times where it's not enough. There's a... There's days where I don't think about it much. And sometimes even the anniversary of her passing will come and I don't even think about it. But some days I think, man, one day I'm gonna get married and uh, my sister won't even know the woman that I married, most likely. That's rough, because we were, we were very close. When she died, I definitely felt like I lost my best friend. We talked about everything. And uh, we didn't really have any secrets. And so when she died, I was like, I don't have someone else like that. I feel wholly inadequate to pastor some of the members of our church. I've been through some stuff. This point in my life, I live with a limp. You can't see it, but I do. You probably do too. I've got scars you can't see. You probably have some too. But I think of Nick and Jenny and I wonder how I would survive. I have a daughter that's roughly Jordan's age when Jordan died. I had breakfast with her yesterday. I texted Nick last night to tell him thank you for sharing he and Jenny's story. He texted me back. Phil, we are absolutely humbled to be able to share our story with our church and hopefully many across the nation and possibly even the world. We prayed since Jordan died that God was going to use our story for his glory and we knew that he would because he doesn't waste a hurt. Everything can be used for his glory. This is the path God placed us on, and the more people that hear our story, prayerfully, we hope it brings more people into relationship with Christ. It's not just people who have lost someone close to them. Our story, we pray, just brings people out of their darkness and bitterness that Satan has possibly held them captive in for years. Thank you for your kind words. I'm flattered that you would see the man you see in me, which you and I both know is the power of Christ in us. And that's what I'm praying for. You know, there are different levels of burns. I've had first degree burns. I've had second degree burns. I had a, a little bit of a third degree burn at one time in my life. They're all painful, but some burns burn far deeper and far hotter. Whatever the fire you find yourself in, whether you're in one today, you will eventually be one that you couldn't have fathomed, it's gonna be hot. Peter gives us three things to hang on to in the fire. Three things to focus on in the fire. And I wanna give you those three things right now. Listen very carefully. First of all, hope in the resurrection. However hot the fire, focus in the hope of the resurrection. This is what Peter says now. He says in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, you are never hopeless. 
No matter how hopeless it may feel, Peter says you are never without hope because we have a living hope whose name is Jesus. Christ died, but three days later, he came out of the grave. He is today fully alive. And as long as God is alive, as long as God doesn't die, you got hope. Now, if God dies, we're all in trouble. All right, But Jesus is alive, never again to die. What Peter's reminding us of is the resurrection gives us absolute certainty of the destination. In the end, we win. In the end, it's redemption. In the end, it's restoration of all of creation because the resurrection is the hope of every Christian. It is the foundation. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. And Paul ends that chapter like this saying, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the victor. Satan, you lose. Jesus wins. In the end, we win. He's saying focus on the resurrection. Death does not get the final say. Death is not the end. And I want you to see that he says that Philippians 3.10, the apostle Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. God wants to conform you to the image of his son in the fires of life. Now, how many of you want to know Jesus? Listen, Paul didn't say, I don't know him. What he's saying is, I want to know him more. If you want to know him in a deeper way, and if you want to know him beyond just the surfacey way, if you want to know him more intimately, what's he say? Then you have to take part in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, everybody likes the first part of this verse, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. But to get to the power of his resurrection, Paul is saying, you've got to bear the agony and the suffering of the crucifixion because on the other side of the crucifixion, it is the power of the resurrection. Focus not on the moment of pain, but the prize that is on the other side. Now he says the second thing is this, in the middle of those fires, don't just focus on the resurrection, but focus on your reward. There is a reward that will never fade away. It will never, ever decay. He says in verse three, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Did you know that there is an inheritance God your Father has for you that will never ever fade away? It will never ever decay. What is an inheritance? I hope to leave my three kids an inheritance someday. I'm going to leave them $129.95. They can do whatever they want with it. That's their inheritance, okay? I want you to think about this. Even if I left each of them a million dollars apiece, in the scope of eternity, a million dollars has no more value than $129.95. It's all going to go away. It's going to decay. It's one day going to fade. There is an inheritance, though, that will last forever. For my kids to get their inheritance, what has to happen? Somebody has to die. Me. 
For you to get your eternal inheritance, guess what had to happen? Somebody had to die. That is Jesus. Because he died, you have an eternal inheritance. I don't know for sure what this looks like, but I know it says in Romans 8, 17 that we are children of God, and if children, then we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being a joint heir as a child of God with Jesus Christ? Can you fathom? Can you imagine? I don't know for sure what that means, but I know the apostle. So Paul wrote that I has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the hearts of men the things that God has prepared for them who love him. I'm trying to tell you, heaven is going to be out of this world. Literally. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. I'm telling you, we have a heavenly inheritance as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. It'll never fade away. It'll never, ever decay. God, your Father, has reserved it in heaven for you. There is a high king whose name is Jesus that's going to establish a kingdom that will be without end. It'll be without sin. It's the restoration of all of creation. No more distortion of sin. Paradise lost. Paradise regained. But check this out. Revelation 1 and verse 6. He's made you to be a priest and a king, and you will reign on the the earth. Revelation 5.10, he's made you to be a priest and a king, and you will reign on the earth for all of eternity. You're going to be a king or a queen. You're going to have dominion in this kingdom that will be without end as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. This is reality, and everything you currently see will one day fade away. It is not yet the end. Romans 8, 18, the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. No matter how painful the suffering of this present time, it cannot compare to the glory which shall be revealed in us. If I read that verse correctly, what that means is to the degree you suffer now is the degree you'll be glorified later. Our glory comes from suffering. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, our light affliction is but for a moment. It's for a moment. Uh, when I was a little boy growing up, every time you get sick, back in this era that I grew up in, every time you went to the doctor, you would always get a shot. Always. Penicillin cured everything. Now, by the time I had kids, they weren't given shots. They were prescribing antibiotics. But when I was a kid, man, my kids didn't know how good they had it because I dreaded going to the doctor. I mean, it was gonna mean pain. I was sick already, it was about to get worse, torture. And I'll never forget though, every single time that doctor would look at me and say, son, this will only hurt for a moment. It'll only hurt for a moment. You know what the Apostle Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4, 17? This light affliction is but for a moment. God, your Father, is looking at you in that fire saying, listen, my child, it's only for a moment. It's only going to hurt for a moment compared to the scope of eternity. 22 years or 220 years, it's all the same. Our lives are just a speck of dust on the carpet. It's just a snippet, a blip in time. And before you is eternity. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, our light affliction is but for a moment, but it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Therefore, do not look at what is seen, but what is unseen, for that which is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. Don't focus on what you see. Don't focus on what is temporary. Focus on eternity. That is your ultimate destiny. That you see as reality. Don't focus on the pain. Focus on the prize. 
Focus on Jesus. Follow Jesus. Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross with joy. How do you go to a cross with joy? A cross was something he was going to be tortured on. A cross was something that was brutal and bloody and ugly. A cross was something that he was going to die on, yet we see Jesus went to the cross with joy. You know why? He wasn't focused on the cross. He's focused on the other side of the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The right hand in the ancient days was the place of power and dominion. You see, Jesus was focused not on the cross, but rather on the crown. The cross is temporary, but the crown would last forever. He went to the cross with joy. Why? Because he was focused on the crown. Don't focus on the crucifixion. You focus on the joy of the resurrection. And then finally, put your hope in our refining. Hope in the resurrection. Hope in our reward. Hope in our refining. God is refining our faith like gold is refined in fire in the trials of life. This is amazing. This is beautiful. Listen carefully. There's two times in the New Testament the Greek word poikilos is found. The first time Peter uses it right here in 1 Peter 4 and verse 6, speaking of various trials. The word various is poikilos. The only other time it's found, Peter uses it in the same letter, 1 Peter 4.10, describing grace, manifold grace. That word there, manifold, comes from poikilos. Poikilos is a word that means multicolored. I went to the paint store recently. I needed a can of white paint. I never had any idea there were so many colors of white. I mean, really, I couldn't believe it. I mean, how many colors of white exist? There is white white, there is bright white, there is off white, there is cream white, there is bone white. I mean, dozens of colors of white, multicolors of white. You know what God is teaching? Listen carefully. Trials are multicolored graces too. And what this means is that God has exactly the size and shade of grace to perfectly match your specific trial. I think to myself when I think of Nick and Jenny, when I say I don't feel adequate to pastor Nick and Jenny, like I have never felt that kind of pain. I have felt pain, I know pain, but I've never felt that kind of pain. But here's what God wants us to understand. God would give me the grace in that moment and he hasn't given me that kind of grace yet because I haven't needed it. See, he fits your grace and the kind of grace, a multicolored grace, in the exact size and shape of the trial for which you're going. And this is when you start to live in the power of the resurrected Christ. You gotta have some grit in life. I like the Friday Night Western on the Outdoor Channel. You can call me goofy. I like the Friday Night Western on the Outdoor Network. Guess what? This week it was John Wayne, classic, True Grit. True Grit. Listen, you need some grit. There was a time in my life I thought I had all the grit I needed, like determination, tenacity, never give up mentality, like bring it on. 
Listen, I have since grown in the last 20 years. Grit alone is not enough. Where grit runs out, God's grace steps in. And when you can no longer hang on to God, God's gonna hang on to you. And this is what Peter is now teaching, verse eight, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy. Peter is teaching even in the fires, you can still have joy because when you've lost everything else, you can't lose Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of our joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. God is promising that the prize will one day be worth the prize price of having lived by faith in the fires of this life. I had a lady that had never met her and said, you know, tell me about Jordan. And this is probably five or six months afterwards. And I was just like, you know, that meant the world to me. And so just, you know, to know that people still remember her. There's just been a huge impact for the time that she spent here. There's we see so much good. At her visitation, we were only supposed to be there for, I think, two hours. And I think we were there for about five or longer. And the line wrapped around the core, basically. And we just, so many people would come up to us and say, I wouldn't have known God or I would not have known Jesus if it was not for Jordan in my life. And I don't think a single person would have said that about me. Our son, Blake, was, um, he wasn't really walking with the Lord. And you know he was he was drinking he was doing some drugs, um, and I'd like to say that his sister passed away. And the next morning, Blake woke up and went, "I'm done." But that's not how that went at all. He actually went a little further. My initial reaction was, "Nope, this can't be real. God can't love anyone on this planet if He just removes people from their lives that are so integral to their life." So at first, I was pretty mad at God, honestly. But eventually, though, God was able to keep working in my life. Because at the time that my sister died, as I, I just didn't do the right thing. I wasn't really living for anything at the time, but after her passing, when I reevaluated my life, and I started making those small changes that God wanted me to get rid of this and maybe start doing this differently, uh, it just has led me to a spot where I never would have seen myself before. Like even to this day, when I'm at Three Trails Community, where I get to be the middle school director, which is a fantastic opportunity, I'm just like, God, I don't know what we're doing here, but I'm here to do it with you. Uh, somewhere I never thought that I would be, her passing might have been what it took for me to get saved and for me to become who I am today, someone who is trying to be after God's own heart and someone who is trying to build up this kingdom. That's a hard thing for a lot of people to wrap their mind around. You don't want to think like that in your humanness that you got to lose your kid so your other kid can get right with God, but maybe that's what it was all about. When people say things like, you guys have amazing faith. You were so impressed by your faith. We're so impressed by how you walk with Jesus. It's not us, because we couldn't do it. I mean, it, it is truly God. That strength comes from God. It, that is not us whatsoever. That's us leaning fully into him, and that's his strength. I'm absolutely ecstatic for the day that I get to meet my sister again, get to see her again in God's kingdom, I get to say, Jordan, your life, even though it ended too early, it led me to incredible places that God could use me. And I can hug her and say thank you for that.
Romans 8, 28 is true, that God makes all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those that are called according to his purpose. What the world means for evil, God can use for good. Beauty for ashes. Some of us feel like my life is ashes because I have been in the fire. And I want to minister to you right now. I'm going to ask the prayer team if you would come right now. We're going to worship together. And maybe God would say today is the day to take a step. And we want to minister to you in prayer. We're going to pray for God's grace. Poikilos. The perfect size, perfect shape. For whatever trial you're going through, that you're going to leave this place. Today walking in God's grace. Come quickly, would you?